So I want to talk to you guys about Sing and Dog Double Reads. Sing and Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Visit them at www.singindog.com to see all of their products and you'll be glad you did. That's Sing and Dog Double Reads. Hey, let's talk about Jenna Ingalls Reads. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds, or cane handcrafted to your specifications and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH, all caps, for 10% off their first order at JennetIngle.com. That's J-E-N-N-E-T-I-N-G-L-E.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Jackie, it's episode 29. Oh, yeah. Why do I always start by saying what episode it is? <laughs> Does anyone care? Well, and the listeners are clicking on the link, and it says episode number. So they're like, <laughs> yes, we know. You guys have to remind yourself. Um, well, I have a barrio update that I want to share. Tell me everything. So for as a reminder, I'm currently, or have been, I guess, learning for the past nine months the Barrio Sequenza for solo bassoon, um, which requires the performer to circular breathe for 15 to 20 minutes, depending on your tempo. Um, admittedly, I've been riding closer to 15. Sorry about it. Um, do what you got to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've been um, kind of piecemealing it together, and this piece is really – it's the most challenging thing I've ever played, and it's incredibly substantial, and my faculty recital that I had programmed it on is in February, very early February. So leading up to it, I lined up a couple of smaller scale, I call them practice performances, and I've had a lot of nerves, just to be completely honest, leading up to it because it's a different type of piece. Right. And mm -hmm. in my mind, at least, the potential for disaster was so great that I was really approaching it with a spirit of fear, which I don't like and is not naturally in my nature. And it was just causing me a lot of anxiety and a lot of. Yeah, you don't. you're not usually a nervous performer. Right. Um, I just had all these disaster scenarios and just all this music brain emotion muckety muck going on in relation to this piece. Um, so on Monday I of this week, I had my first practice performance. I went in, there's a 20th century uh, music history class. And so the teacher invited me in to talk about the work and to do a performance of it. And it was a substantial class. It was about 40 people. And I played about as well as I could have. <gasps> That's amazing. It went awesome. And just the experience of starting this piece, which I was like, I don't even know how I'm going to do this. And then, you know, a, a measure became a phrase, became a section, became a page, became two pages, became eventually the whole piece. And the last question I had is, okay, but can I perform it? When I'm in front of people, can I do what I do in the practice room? And the answer is yes. So ah, I'm so excited for you. It was a big glory moment. And just, you know, I have subsequent performances, of course, but just, 
you know, they will be on some spectrum of good to not great, hopefully on the good side, but that does not change the fact that I can perform this piece and that anything that comes after is just on that gradient of how happy or unsatisfied I am with the performance, but I did it, and I felt like that in Titanic, where he's like, I'm the king of the world, I was like walking <laughs> back, like, just in my best mood, living my best life, so that's my update, and, you know, the... It was just really positive. It has been a really positive experience taking on a huge project and seeing it through. So, you know, I just kind of recommend if there's anything people are kind of kicking around, ah, should I embark on that? Should I try that? My experience has been really positive. So I encourage you to kind of go for that thing you're hesitating about. It's been really good for me. Wow. I'm so happy for you and so excited. And I can't wait for you to perform it in your recital. Yes. What's new with you? <laughs> Oh, not too much. Um, we are, well, we had a few snow days at the beginning of the semester, so we were sort of off to a weird start, but things are, things are good now. We're, we're back in the swing of things. But, uh, but yeah, it's a good time to just sort of get back to the grindstone, and sometimes that's hard to do, especially after a long, beautiful, relaxing break, like I hope everybody had. So we recently did a Call for the best advice you've ever gotten about music. And we got a lot of really great responses. Mm -hmm. So, Jackie, what is some advice that you've gotten that has changed your life? You know, as I contemplated this question, one thing really stood out to my mind. Uh, when I went to my master's degree at Boston University, the jury situation there was different than what I'd experienced in my undergrad. Um, there were enough bassoon faculty that we did bassoon-specific juries. So I had a lot of nervousness going into it because I was thinking, oh my gosh, it's going to be the bassoon section of the BSO listening to me. I'm going to be playing for Mr. Ranty. I'm going to be playing for Mr. Henniger. Oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. I'm so intimidated. Um, and that's something I've kind of battled. That That is one way that my nerves manifest itself is if I have huge amounts of respect or I'm intimidated by someone who's listening, that can really impact me more than the number of people listening, interestingly. Mm -hmm. And so I told Dr. Ruggiero, I was like, I'm so nervous for this jury. Like, I feel like I'm prepared, but I'm so, so, so nervous. And he told me this story. Uh, growing up in Philadelphia, he would go to the park, and there were the, um, like, chess checkerboards. You know how, like, there'll be tables with the chess checker pattern kind of printed onto them? Mm -hmm. and you can bring your own pieces. And that there were all these people who would basically show up and play chess kind of tournament style for fun. And he was this young boy growing up in Philly. And there was this one old Russian immigrant who was like this chess aficionado at Bobby Fischer level. And he was super, super intimidated to play with him. And so finally the rotation got to where Dr. Ruggiero was playing against the Russian. And he was super, super nervous and intimidated, kind of like I was feeling. And the Russian looked at him and said, you know, what is wrong with you? What is your problem, kid? And he said, I'm nervous to play against you. I, I respect you. You intimidate me. And he said, just play the board. And so then Dr. Ruggiero said, when you feel this way, just play the board. Don't mm -hmm. think about who's on the other side. Just play the board. And mm -hmm. so several times throughout my career, I've had to remind myself, just play the board. Just play the board. And that's been one of my touchstone pieces of advice I've consistently gone back to. I love it. Yes. What about you? So the the piece of advice that I chose was from my undergrad when I studied with Bert Lucarelli, friend of the podcast. And um, I was thinking about sending in an application for something. I don't even remember what the application was for or an audition or something like that. And I was like, oh, I don't think I'll do it. I don't think I'll get in, so I'm just not going to do it. And he said, well, let them reject you. Don't mm -hmm. reject yourself. Mm -hmm. And that has stuck with me for so long. I mean, it's such good advice, first of all. Because you don't know what the playing field looks like for any particular audition or application scenario. You just don't know. Mm -hmm. And inserting your own narrative about, oh, obviously I'm not good enough, doesn't really make any sense because you don't have any concrete information or data to base that on. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> no, I love it. It's great advice. I loved it. And it's it's been really helpful for many, many years. You know, it's exactly like you were saying when you're intimidated by something. It's just like, well, that's their job. I'll let them do that. Yeah. They can do the judging. I'll just do what I do. Exactly. Delegate. Delegate. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you're looking at our Instagram account. What advice do mm-hmm. people on Instagram have? So Sophie wrote, auditions can be subjective and are not a true reflection of you as a musician. Mm-hmm. Also, that as a musician, it is your goal to better yourself and to reach the audience, not just for the purpose of gaining awards or titles. Oh, Yeah. And then Mary Parker wrote in, number one, don't suck. Good advice. (laughs) (laughs) Always a nice goal. (laughs) And number two, don't practice until you get it right. Practice until you can't get it wrong. Mm -hmm. Oh, Javier says. Shout out Javier. Shout out Javier. Um, If you can't play it slow, you can't play it fast. Oh, and dot, dot, dot. Have fun. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that reminds me of uh, the Itzhak Perlman quote, if you learn it fast, you forget it fast, and if you learn it slow, you forget it slow, which that's I love. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, John says, first, look for everything that went well today. Then, look for what you can do better tomorrow. Finally, be happy for how well it went today and look forward to tomorrow when everything will be even better. Oh, yeah. How beautiful is that? Hashtag blessed. Hashtag bless. Okay, I got one last one. From Becky. There is work for everyone who works hard and is nice to work with. Also, metronome forever and always. That is such a good thing to keep in mind. Sometimes that first piece of advice can be really hard to keep in mind. Oh, I was thinking metronome. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. true. I'm just being funny. (laughs) No, it's true. It's true. Yes, you have to be good at what you do, but you also have to be a person about it. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. What pearls of wisdom did you find on our Facebook page? Lots of good ones. Um, Andrea says, you have to have standards for yourself, which I like. You know, I always tell my students, I can't practice it for you. My degrees are on my wall. You Mm -hmm. have to owe it to yourself. You have to, you know, realize you're in this for yourself. Um, Jeffrey says, I love this. Please don't take any criticism personally. We are all here to play music and always with the best results we can achieve. I love that. Mm-hmm. Susan says, don't guess. Also love that. <laughs> also very important. Uh, Jeanette says, this is a Toscanini quote, if you want to please the critics, don't play too soft, too loud, too fast, or too slow. Praise that. <laughs> and last, uh, Kristen Schillinger says, and this is a great note okay. to end on, find your voice and sing out loud. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. And there's more. There's more pearls of wisdom on both of our pages. So if you want to go look at what the Double Read community hive mind has dreamed up, just go to our Instagram or our Facebook page. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Double or Nothing Reads. You know them. They're the company that's dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reads to discriminating double read players of all ages and abilities. And good news. Double or Nothing Reads has recently expanded to sell double read tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. Better yet, as authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. Additionally, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. And if you're looking for private oboe lessons and can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit their website, doubleornothingreads.com, for good quality and affordable read-making supplies and resources, lessons, instruments, and much more. Everyone knows that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality and service in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries Artisan Mall? 
The Genda Industries Artisan Mall is like a farmer's market filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers. Who knows? One day they may be your reeds for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool roll. Visit them at www.gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're more than just reed knives. We are so happy to welcome to the podcast Gustavo Nunez, Principal Bassoonist of the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra. Welcome, Gustavo. Hi. Thank you very much for having me. We usually like to start by asking you to introduce yourself to our listeners, and uh, would you tell us how you started playing the bassoon? Well, um, I am Gustavo Núñez, and uh, I am the principal uh, bassoon of the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra in Amsterdam. Um, I also teach, I'm a professor at the uh, Robert Schumann Academy of Music in Dusseldorf, Germany. And also, uh, I'm a professor in Madrid at the uh, Reina Sofia Music School. Uh, how did I start it? I started, uh, I don't remember how I started with music. I, uh, I was a little boy and I could read music before I could read any words. Uh, I come from a very musical background. My, my uh, grandfather was a clarinet player. My father is a bassoon player. All my uncles are musicians or, or were, were musicians. Um, my brother is a musician. I have a couple of cousins who are musicians also. Um, so I, I don't really remember how, we, how I got into music, but I, I started uh, uh, with the violin when I was uh, probably uh, four or five years old. And that was a coincidence. I had this dream. Uh, we were at the beach, and I had a dream one night that I, that I had found a violin. And... Uh, I was very happy with my violin. I couldn't play a note on it, but I was very happy with it. And suddenly, in that dream, I lost the violin. And I um, suddenly I saw it, uh, uh, since I was in the, at the beach, I saw it swimming, uh, floating in the water very far away. So I, I woke up in the middle of the night screaming for my violin. And my parents, uh, you know, they, they, they thought, oh my goodness, we need to get this guy a violin. I, I must have been three or four when mm. this happened. So I got a violin and I started playing the, the violin. But I always wanted to play the bassoon because my dad is a bassoon player. And when I was a little boy, I, I thought all the hats played the bassoon. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there was something like, uh, it is your destiny, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, but my hands were too small. You have to think of the seventies. There were no fagotinos, no little bassoons. Uh, so the, the only thing you could get was a normal bassoon for a child of seven, eight. That was impossible. It was too big, too large. So I um, I, I, I went on with the violin for many years. And, but I wanted, I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to play the bassoon. I didn't want anything else but the bassoon. Uh, at last, when I was 11, I got my first bassoon. And uh, and I started playing the bassoon, and I never played the, the violin again, except for when I'm really drunk at a party. That <laughs> <in my hands. laughs> but that, uh, that, is, uh, that is also something very private in family and things. And my wife is a violin player, so I get, I get to play in a very expensive violin. Um, <laughs> No, but uh, and since you know, since I'm 11, I'm, I've been playing the bassoon, and uh, I I, uh, I went. Uh, we were back then, you know, I, I was born in Uruguay, but back then I was. Uh, uh, we were living in Venezuela. My dad was playing in Caracas in the orchestra, and he was teaching at, at, the, at, the, at the music school. And I I went into this youth orchestra system in Venezuela. The the called so very famous now uh, uh, Sistema, no, with uh, Gustavo Dudamel and mm-hmm. all that, the, all those those people. Uh, uh, um, I uh, I went there when I was uh, 13 years old, and I had my first rehearsal. I mean, I, could, I couldn't even play the bassoon actually when I was 13. 
it was it was more like a game. Um, but uh, somehow uh, we were sitting there, and uh, we, my, my very first rehearsal at the youth orchestra was Marriage of Figaro. Can you imagine what what came out of that? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> when I think of it, I, I, I really think. What were we doing? But you know, we we, we went slowly. We went really slow. We, we went. The whole orchestra, fortissimo, you know. So we we went for months, months and months practicing the, all of us together, and 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 we did play it after after maybe two three months. We played it in concert, and we played really in, in the right tempo, which was pretty amazing. For, for boys and girls, you know, we were all very young, you know, the, the oldest must have been six, 16, 17, you know, so that, was, that was pretty impressive, uh, and that, that I think that, uh, that, uh, uh, that somehow determined my life as a musician, you know, uh, I guess, I don't remember when I said I want to become a musician, I really, you know, do it, do it for my life, I, I, I don't know that, but I think... That experience of being in the youth orchestra with all the, the other uh, girls and boys, I guess that um, that influenced me a lot, mm-hmm. you know. And, and, and then uh, uh, I was lucky enough to to to, to go to, to study in England when I was 16 years old, you know. And I, I studied at the Royal College of Music, and, and uh, that was, of course, uh, I didn't have a scholarship, so it was a very expensive business. And my parents couldn't afford that, so I only stayed that for, for for about two years, and then I left. And and and, and I ended up uh, um, doing something I really wanted to do f- even before going to London, which was studying in Germany with a great Klaus Hörmann, who was always an inspiration uh, um, with all his recordings. And um, yeah, and then suddenly I was uh, I was 19, and I was uh, studying in, in Germany with the great Klaus Hörmann, who was. Uh, an amazing person, an amazing teacher, and not only an amazing bassoon player, but he had a wonderful, wonderful sound and a very beautiful vibrato. And he was so inspiring every single time you heard him play in the lesson. You know, you, you had uh, one and a half uh, hours of, of a lesson with this, this great, great bassoon player. And he would explain everything to you, you know, every single note he had a story for. And he would sit on the piano and show you the, the harmony and, and you know and then and explain how it goes and then and so I, I don't know it was a process and then one day I was um, I was sitting in an orchestra in, in Germany I was um, in the theater in Darmstadt that was my, my very first job in Germany and um, uh, yeah and they, I went on to, to to win an audition in Bamberg in the Bamberg Symphony I was there for like six years and um one day i um i saw this advert in 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 a music magazine uh, concertgemeenschap orchestra principal bassoon i thought well i have to try this one don't i and i i you know i applied for the i applied for the for the for the audition for the job and uh, i was invited somehow after sending a recording and uh, and i went there and i played and somehow Something I didn't understand back then. And I still, I still remember. It was, it was pretty uh, uh, unbelievable. I got the job. Mm. Somehow, it just happened to me. You know, I, 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 I didn't expect it to happen. So, and that, that's why I was so relaxed with it. I just went on practicing. I practiced like a like a madman for that audition. Not not because I wanted to get the job, because I had a very good job in Germany. But I wanted. To um, to do it well, you know. I didn't want to to go there and, and make a fool of out of myself. So I I really practiced very very hard for that audition, and it just went well, you know. And then uh, I went with with uh, I was very humble, I think, and I just I just went note by note, and uh, suddenly I finished the the whole audition, you know. And I thought, well, that wasn't that bad. You know, I've played worse in my life. I mean, I've played better, but I also played much worse than that. And suddenly he came out and told me, yeah, you, you got the job. Mm. And, uh, well, it took me, you know, it took me a couple of weeks to come down to earth again. <laughs> <laughs> and be a human being again. Mm-hmm. 
no, no, you, you go into some kind of a trance for a couple of weeks and say, oh, oh my God, look at me. Huh? <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> Deservedly so, admittedly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is, it is very strange when you, when you are, you are young and you know you, you admire all these these people. The job of one of my heroes, uh, who was uh, Brian Pollard, who was a, an amazing bassoon player. Uh, uh, he was he was uh, 42 years principal bassoon uh, here in Amsterdam in the Conservatory Orchestra, and I, and, and I, I admire him still. I, I I admire him so much, and suddenly one day. I was supposed to go and sit on his chair. That is, that is something so, so strong, so heavy. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you have that kind of responsibility. And, uh, well, somehow I, I managed to do it because I think I, it's just, I did it in a, in a you know, in a, I tried to do it in a very humane way. I just thought, well, I can't be that man. So the best thing I can do is try to be myself. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and I try to educate myself as much as possible. Not 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 uh, uh, not reading history books, but uh, uh, reading scores and and listening to old recordings of the orchestra and trying to find out <coughs> the way to to mix, the way to adapt in the orchestra as a member of of, of a whole band which is already rolling for for back then for for more than a hundred years. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, and 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 now and now I'm here, and you know, and, and I'm 52 years old, and I have five children, and you know, I have a huge debt, and, <laughs> <laughs> and that's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's me, yeah, and and, and uh, far too many students, and <laughs> yeah. Well, when we announced that you were coming on the podcast, the listeners sent in a litany of questions. So I'd love to oh just go ahead and jump into those. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, go ahead, please. Daniel Westerfield wants to know about your experience um, transitioning into European orchestras and schools of music, despite being from South America. I, I, uh, I don't really remember quite. Because you know, I came at a, at a very young age to Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my, I learned to play the bassoon from my dad. My dad per, play, uh, learned to play the French bassoon first, and then he, he learned to play the the German system bassoon from an Italian bassoon player in in Buenos Aires. Mm-hmm. So I already learned somehow a European way of playing. Uh, and then I, I went to England, which was actually the, 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 the big step, a big change, because I was uh, used to play in a, in a quite Italian way somehow with, with uh, vibrato and, um, yeah, yeah, somehow the, the Italian articulation. And, and I came to England, and that's a completely different uh, approach to bassoon player, where, where, I mean, it has developed. I mean, we are talking about 30, 36 years ago. And it has changed a lot, but um, back then it was uh, the, the very, very English way of playing without without any vibrato. You know, most players, most bassoon players in England played without any vibrato, and uh, or they did a, or they did a very slow vibrato, very, very, very somehow very expressive, deep vibrato, uh, but never the, the 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 fastest, the faster. Italian vibrato, we know also from from the old school. I mean, if you if you hear to recordings of of uh, old Italian players like Muchetti, who was a magnificent player uh, at La Scala, you can hear his he, playing on YouTube. By the way, uh, there is a, 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 a magnificent, really magnificent recording of Medea. You know the aria from Medea from the opera Medea. Um, uh, Muchetti plays the, the big bassoon solo, and it's amazing, amazing, really beautiful playing. Anyway, I, I um, so that was the first step to come to England, and what what happened to me? Um, I adapt, I tried to adapt to to that, you know. So I started playing with less vibrato, and then, but you know, I was I was young and I was South American, and I was a revolutionary. So I, you know, I'm not gonna <laughs> let anyone tell me that I have to play without vibrato. So I went to play with more vibrato. <laughs> 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 and I went, I went to try different kinds of vibrato, you know. 
I went, I went to try to make vibrato with your lips, and I went to try to make vibrato with your diaphragm, and I went to try to make vibrato with your throat. I, want, I, I tried everything. I was, you know, I was experimenting with, with all the, the, um, the things. And, um, and finally, I got to, 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 to Germany, where, where I, I met this, this, this uh, fabulous man, Klaus Thunemann, who was, who was my inspirer when I was a younger man. Uh, and uh, and uh, I, just started, I just started, you know, trying to, to play in that way. So, you know, it's, it wasn't that heavy. I, I didn't really notice. Uh, you don't notice that you change somehow. You, you adapt to it. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, it's, like, it's like speaking a language. You know, it, it goes through your ears and then it comes out through your mouth. You know, uh, you, 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 uh, you learn to speak a language through listening and then copying. And that's, that's how I learned from, from all my teachers. You know, listening and copying at the beginning. And then you go forward from there. That leads into Steph's question of how did you motivate yourself to practice as a student? Oh, well, you know. Um, uh, motivation was 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 very simple for me because I uh, suddenly I came uh, in in an environment both in in London and in Hanover where I studied with Tunneman uh, where where everybody played much better than me they were all much better than me but far far better than me so I had to practice a lot so I I remember after my first lesson with with Tunneman which was on a Thursday morning I remember that. In, 19, in 1984, I, I, um, I had my first lesson with him on a Thursday morning, and he's, at the end, we, we did some work on, on some things, and then, and then he's, he told me, you come next Tuesday to see me, and you bring me Hummel Concerto, Vivaldi Sonata, I don't know which one, I don't remember which one, and uh, you, you bring me four orchestral excerpts. Oh, my God. And I said, oh, my, yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> so I went, I went home. I got home at about 11:30, 12 at noon, you know, and I started practicing. And that day I practiced for for five hours, and that was the very same day of the lesson. Mm-hmm. And the next day, yeah, it, the next day I practiced nine hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was the Friday, and I thought, oh my goodness, I have at the end of that day I couldn't play anything, <laughs> anything. I couldn't play anything, and I thought, oh my god, I have three more days to go for my next lesson and I can't play anything. I can't do anything. So, you know, that weekend I just spent all day practicing both days and Monday too. And I, I got to my, to my uh, lesson on Tuesday morning and the only thing I could play was the first page of Humor Concerto. I mean, I didn't even get to the second page because I just, I thought, well, it doesn't make any sense. You know? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so that's how I, 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 uh, I inspired myself to practice because I needed to be able to play. I needed to practice a lot to be able to, to, to play anything. I, was, uh, I always thought I wasn't good enough anyway, so I just had to practice. So I, that wasn't difficult for me. Nick Johnston has noticed that your reads have four wires, and he's curious <laughs> about your kind of approach to read making anyway, and also the purpose of that fourth wire. He wants to yeah, know. <laughs> that's very that's very simple. That's uh, uh, um, you could you could call that the beginning of that was laziness because I uh, yeah no no because I I am a true believer that you have to make reads every day of your life. The only way to have a good read to play is to have at home, your, your table full of reeds. If your table is full of reeds, there is always one which will work. If you, if you only have three reeds, then you will probably not have a good one. Mm-hmm. So my, if you see my desk, is, my desk is full of them. And the, uh, that's the only way to have a good read to play. You know? And most especially, very especially, I, uh, my recommendation for everybody, be patient with the read. And accept the fact, accept the fact that the week might not do everything you want it to do. Nevertheless, you have to do it. So accept the fact that the read is not so good and just play and try to enjoy it. Uh, anyway, coming back to the, um, to the, uh, the wires 
thing. I, I uh, to save some time because I was really making a lot of reads all the time. I, well, I do make a lot of reads all the time. Um, I started making the reads without the the, the, the ball, without the without the, uh, uh, what do you call it, a threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was uh, making them with three wires. And then every single good read I had, I would put a ball in it. I would put, you know, I just finish it and paint it and whatever, you know, you know glue and paint and whatever. And then I, but I realized that every time I did that, the reads changed, changed dramatically. They, they changed so much that they weren't good anymore. Mm. So I started to play in the reads as they were, without any any extra cotton or, or oh. nylon on them, just the wires. But, uh, but I still had three wires on the reed, so the reed was very unstable on the crook, on the vocal. Mm. So what I did was, I remember, that I, didn't invent, I, didn't, I did not invent this. This came from, uh, from an Italian bassoon player who played in South America, and I, I was a, a young boy, I was sitting at a rehearsal next to my dad, and I looked at this colleague, he was this Italian bassoon player, and he had four wires on his reed. I don't know why he had four wires, I don't care why, but I, suddenly I remember, wait, wait a minute, this man, he had four wires. Mm-hmm. So I tried. And that gave me so much more uh, uh, um, security, so much, so much more stability uh, for the read on the vocal, that I just started making the, the, the thing with, with the four wires. I mean, it, there's no science to it. It's just, I, I believe uh, reads uh, 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 vibrate better with the wires than, when, than all the, the material on them, wrapping them around, you know, and then taking, you know, taking so much vibration out of the reeds. And uh, since the, the reeds vibrate better, you, you can play with more, more cane on them, more wood on them. Mm. Um, you know, we, we, we make always the mistake that we go with, a, with our knife, with reed knife, we take a lot of material to try to make them vibrate. And we forget the most important thing. The material that actually vibrates is the material you're taking away. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, the cane is the, the, what vibrates. If you, if, you, if, you make it, if you make it too thin, it won't vibrate. So it, it's a compromise, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a compromise of, of uh, tension and, and uh, 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 how much uh, cane is on your, on your reed and... Uh, to make it vibrate, and, and, and well, I went too far, I think, on the explanation, but um, the, the thing with the four wires uh, is not something I invented. It came out of, of the fact that I was lazy, and I wanted to make reads faster, uh, and, and I make them uh, with, with, only with wires at the beginning, and I, I, I tried to, uh, when, they, when I thought they were good, I, I tried to uh, finish them, but they, they cha- then they changed. So I, I, I started doing it. Uh, with the wires only. That's really interesting as the resident oboist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just as a follow-up question to that, do your students generally take that approach also? No, 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 no. Many, many, well, some of them do and some some of them don't. No, I just don't tell anyone they should should do it. No, 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 no. I I don't think anybody should do it. I mean, if, if it works for you, you should, I mean, everybody should try it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like a it's it's like a good glass of wine. Everybody should try it. <laughs> but I, I don't I don't think anyone should do it. Uh, uh, my some of my students do the same, and some don't. The, the the thing the problem with using only wires is that the reeds after five or six days they start to lose uh, 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 somehow the, the the stability and they they fall apart. You know. Mm-hmm. But I don't mind because I play my reach for a very short time. Mm-hmm. I play my reach for, for, for five, six days, and I think they're dead, so I, I just throw them away. I don't use them anymore. So it's, I don't care, you know. So most, most students of mine end up uh, doing it the, 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 the old-fashioned way with, with all the uh, wrap on, on, on the, around the reed because, because they can play them for, for, for at least for another week, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. No, no, they fall apart. Only with mm-hmm. the wires they fall apart. So you have to start pulling up the wires after a week. You start have to start pulling up the wires, and and uh, you know if you pull on the wires, then you change the, the the tension on the reed, and you change everything. So the tip opening is uh, already different. So it, it, no, it doesn't make any sense. It's uh, 
it's a problem. No, so I don't tell anyone to do it. I just explain why I do it. Mm-hmm. And they, they all, of course, they all try it. And they realize they can't play the read after a week. And then they, they decide to play the game. Yeah, yeah, imagine you have a good, at last a good read, and then after a week it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, you have a problem. Eh? It sounds like an oboist problem. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Sounds like oboist. Oh, well, you know, oh, no, it's, it's a bassoon player problem also. <laughs> I mean, we have the problem with a double read. I mean, clarinet players don't, don't seem to have that kind of problem. Mm-hmm. They just buy thousands of reads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I would like to um, ask Alexandra's question. And she starts off off with by saying that she thinks you have the most amazing sound. Wow. And would like to ask, what kind of drills are your favorite for improving sound? I think uh, uh, the the, the production of sound is based on the the amount of air you use. Uh, It's essential to put as much air as possible in your instrument. Um, nevertheless, there is one one little detail is that when we when we put air in the instrument, it's not it's not like uh, when you want to blow out a candle that you go really strong. It's not that because then then you're forcing you will you will be forcing your sound. It's like trying to um, uh, warm up your hands. With mm-hmm. with your with your uh, with your breath, you know, like like uh, and imagine you you uh, you open your mouth your mouth very wide, you put three fingers in between your teeth, and then you go ah, that very deep, very slow uh, uh, flow of air, you know. That's what we need to make a good sound, and. Uh, and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a believer of not biting. Uh, it's it's very common to see people biting a lot on the reeds. And what happens with the reed is that uh, you can bite on a reed for ten minutes and then it's it's it collapses and that's it. It doesn't work anymore. So it's it's a it's 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 a compromise between your, your the opening of your teeth, which should have more or less your you could you should be able to put your pinky between your teeth when you play. So if you go from if you go from the south of your from the side of your mouth with your pinky, you put it between your teeth, your molars at the back of your, uh, and then that's the opening you should have all the time while playing. And then and then of course there is a lot of lip. Your lips should be very strong and hold that reed, but not biting. And then there is a lot of air going there, but never too fast, you know. A lot of air, a lot, a lot, a lot more than you ever think. And I think that's the key to to have a, a decent sound. Mm. By the way, I've, I haven't, I, I still haven't found the, the the right sound I like. But that's me. <laughs> I'm still searching for it. Albert wants to know when you're listening to someone play an audition. What is the mm. number one thing you're listening for? I want I I want to to hear. First, that someone is above the instrument. I don't. I don't want to hear someone struggling with the instrument or the reed or whatever, or the bow if it's a string player. I want to hear someone that uses the instrument to express something. So, someone who is technically above the instrument, or let's say beyond the the technical issues of the instrument. Mm-hmm. That's it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Very easy. That's great. No, it's very simple. No, no, it's 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 you know when you when I, I've you know the thing is that uh, since I, I'm in the orchestra, more than 100 musicians have left mm. in pension in pension or they just have left the orchestra. So we have I've heard, you know, more than 100 auditions. Right. That's a, a that's many that's many auditions, and you know when you hear a young player playing, you have most of the time you have. That very simple reaction, which is yes or no. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's as simple as that. And when it's a yes, the yes is very wide, you know, because there is, there is many ways of playing things. As long as you respect the music, as long as you have a good sonority, good sound, uh, good intonation, good vibrato, you know, expression. There is a thousand yes. 
There is only one no. That's mm-hmm. no. That's not good enough. Okay, that, and that's it. And that has nothing to do with taste. It's no. When you say yes, you could even say yes, but. But that's still a yes. Right. Mm-hmm. But when it's a no, it's a no. So it's a, auditions. I mean, with experience, you learn to do that. You, you know, you, you, you realize this is not fantastic, but maybe, you know, the next round it will get better. So you, you say, you give it a yes. Mm-hmm. And then maybe the next round is fantastic, or it isn't, or it's really terrible, so it's a no. <laughs> but it's, if, if it's really fantastic, then it's a big yes. <laughs> that happens sometimes. That you are surprised by someone who, who you thought, well, that wasn't that good, was it? And then suddenly, the next thing you hear from, you hear from that person is amazingly good. Mm-hmm. That, that really happens. Is that a confidence thing, do you think, or, or a preparation thing? Or? Uh, uh, I think um, it, uh, it might be, well, preparation, yeah, it's, that's, that's the basics, huh? Pre- preparation, how you prepare for the audition. But um, uh, let's call it luck. Hmm. Let's call it just simply, simply luck. Because you, you can play an, a fantastic audition and still, maybe, the orchestra members who are listening to you don't like it. Right. And you don't get, and you don't get the job. And you did fantastic. But you don't get the job. Because, why? Well, because it's not, not quite what they're expecting. Not quite the way they wanted to, to have it. You know, it compli- it's complicated. It's not easy to win auditions. You know, when someone wins an audition, you, you should have a lot of respect. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Winning an audition is still very difficult. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I would, could win an audition now. I mean, I did more than, more, my last audition more than 20 years ago, so I don't, I don't, I don't know. I was young. Uh, it's winning an audition. It, it has to do with the, with the preparation, of course. If you're well prepared, most things will happen. Most things. You will be able to play most, most difficult things. And um, several listeners were curious about your practice routine. What are mm. your warm-up routines? Do you have a daily routine of practice, specifically technique? And how do you plan your practice sessions so that they're as efficient as possible? I, um, I try to start by playing just a long note a couple of times. Just a long note. I just, you know, a long note. Just a couple of times that, that uh, get some oxygen and blow the instrument, warm it up, especially in the winter when it's, when it's really cold. And then, and then uh, uh, for, for uh, my fingers, what I do is just, just, uh, uh, just move, move around my fingers, not at the, especially at the beginning, not too fast, you know. Just try to play a slow scale and then, and then develop. And what I, what I, you know, something that... When when you get uh, when you get to my age, there is one thing. With all the technical things, you actually don't need to play in an orchestra. You know, I mean, if if you look at the bassoon repertoire in in, in the in the symphonic and uh, our symphonic repertoire, is the the bassoon parts are not really that difficult. I mean, you have big soli who have sometimes uh, uh, technical difficulties, but it's not the amount of notes you have to play. You know, if you play bolero, anyone anyone can play the bolero, you know, but play it at the right moment. That's a difficult thing. Mm-hmm. Anyone can play the right of spring, but play it at the right moment. That's a difficult thing. So there is, there is not, it's not about moving your fingers, you know. It's not something that goes very fast, like Beethoven fourth. Yeah, yeah, you have to practice that one very carefully. But yet you have to practice the bolero or the right of spring very carefully, too, because it's really a very difficult moment. You know, later on forth, it goes, it's, on, it's gone before you even could think about it. Uh, uh, and the other things, the, the slow, the slow things are the most difficult ones for me. You know, the, 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 the breathing, it's practice your breathing. Breathe deep and play long notes. And, and what, what I do is, I, my, the scales are practice, I practice are the scales up to four flats four, five uh, uh, sharps, I, I, don't, I don't do much more than that because when do we, when do we play at a D-flat major scale in the orchestra? Never. I don't even remember when was the last time I had to play that one. 
in the orchestra. I, I, I might have never played one in the, in the orchestra. And I've been playing in orchestras for what, more than 30 years now. You know? So it's, um, I try to, and this one very important thing is that I have uh, three jobs and a family. And, you know, you have to split yourself in four. And, mm-hmm. and then you have to practice. So I try to uh, concentrate the practice. You know, when my, I mean, I have, uh, my children are all, they're all big now, but when they were small, when they were really small, that was a problem because you, sometimes you had only 10 minutes and you had to learn, you know, a new piece in 10 minutes. So you had to sit down, close the door and open the music and say, okay, now this I have to learn in 10 minutes. And go for it and try to learn it as much as possible uh, by heart so that you don't have to read the notes because reading the notes at the last moment is the worst you can do because you, mm-hmm. you, you can't. There is no time to, to react with, with the adrenaline. The adrenaline makes you somehow, makes you play faster, but it makes you somehow think slower when you are performing because you can't really read the, the notes, the fast notes and play them. You have to know them. You have to know the notes. There was a, a great oboist who once said in a masterclass, uh, uh, Maurice Bourg, the French oboist, he said mm-hmm. once in a masterclass, there is no time to think. You just have to play. So and that, that's the most difficult thing. When you, when you, are, uh, uh, when you have small children, we have too much to do, like, like uh, the orchestra and two schools and, and too many students. And then you have to concentrate your study. And, uh, but, and try not to lose your head concentrate and look at the music you have to play and uh, we are lucky that most of most music until what well, until 1920 it's just scales and arpeggios mm-hmm. so if you know your scales and arpeggios you can play anything can't you you can play anything that kind of relates to Jackie Hopkins' question, Yes. where in the moment of a big solo performing, how do you maintain yeah. your concentration? How do I do it? Uh, how do I do that? I, uh, I, just, I just look into my music and I just don't look around. Mm-hmm. I just, um, it's like you have to isolate yourself, but it's not, it's not only the moment of your solo just before. I mean, the day I play a big solo, I am not the same, the same person. You don't, you, don't want to, you don't want to see me the day I have a big solo to play. You don't want to talk to me because I'm not a very nice person. Not that, not that, no, 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 no. You know, I'm not, and it's not like, I know someone who's very aggressive. There is a very famous man in, in Germany who, is, who, who used to get very aggressive before, before a, a big solo, so everybody would <laughs> try to escape when he was around. <laughs> But uh, no, I don't, I, it's not, I'm not like that. I just, I just don't react to people. I just try to uh, close the, cur- the curtains and don't, don't look, don't speak, don't let me alone. And try to focus on what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if it's uh, uh, Shostakovich 7 or, or, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, The Rives of Spring, which is, which is not... not I keep saying it, the right of spring is not, it's not a difficult solo. Any, anyone can do it, but the problem is the moment, mm-hmm. the moment itself. You have to do it right now. Start. And that's, that's the most difficult thing. So that's, that's, that's practicing, that's repeating that very first high C like a hundred thousand times a day and see if, you, if you're able to do it in a very automatic way, coming back to Maurice Bourg, saying that it's just, it's just you, have, you have no time to think. You, know, you have to play. Um, so it's, it's about um, trying to isolate yourself from the rest. That's what I do. And then, and then I become more focused on, on what I am doing or what I have to do, what I'm going to do. I think that's it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Sean asks, why does the orchestra's bassoon section sit on the opposite side, and do you ever have issues seeing the conductor? No, no, we never have issues seeing the conductor. We are in the middle. We are, we are in front of the conductor. No, 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 that's no problem. You know, and the, the, the seating is, is very simple. Um, the orchestra 
until the 60s, the orchestra would sit in the, the old-fashioned way, which, would, which was um, uh, you had a, a row of, of uh, uh, woodwinds, which were seen from the conductor's side, the flutes, then the oboes in the middle, and, 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 and then the clarinets next to the oboes in mm -hmm. one row. And behind them, there was uh, uh, left again, from the, from, seen from the conductor, you had the, the French horns, and then right, the bassoons behind the clarinets. The conductor back then, who, who, uh, who had conducted New York, and he wanted to, to I don't know, to make him more modern, and he, he, he wanted to have the, uh, the, the, um, the woodwinds in a modern way, you know, like two groups and two groups behind. But he didn't want the bassoons to go away from the French horns. So he let, he let the clarinets go back, but he moved the bassoons behind the flutes not behind the clarinet as they were before. So the French horns went all the way to the left and next to the flutes, and the bassoons went behind the flutes and the clarinets went one row behind the, to the oboes. And then he got the, all the, wood, the woodwinds in the middle. So that, that's the only reason. There is, uh, there is no other reason to do that. There, there, is, there are some advantages to that, because the second bassoon hears more of the first mm -hmm. while playing. Because, you know, the sound goes a little bit more to the right than to the left. But we don't sit like that every time. You know, when we sit in, a, in one row, sometimes we sit for piano concertos, for Mozart or Beethoven piano concertos. We, we sit them in one row, the woodwinds. So we sit the other, the other way around because we sit on the other side, on the side of the, the, the celli. So we sit the other, the other way around. Juan would like to know um, how you came to the decision to play on a bell bassoon. <laughs> um, it's it's um, it's a long story. I know I knew uh, uh, Benson Bell was making bassoon. Uh, uh, sorry, I didn't know he was making bassoon. I, I knew he was he was making vocals. Mm -hmm. I knew he was a very good repairman, and he, I knew he was making vocals. And um, but I I never I have never I never met the man. And um, my dear friend uh, Fraser Jackson from the Toronto Symphony, he, he uh, asked me once to, um, since I was going to be in New York to uh, to meet a student of his who was who was going to be there, he, uh, and he played the bassoon and he wanted to meet me, and so we we met and we we went uh, to the Carnegie Hall and we uh, uh, we took a room there and uh, he uh, he wanted to play something for me, so he, he opened his his case. And, I, and there was this beautiful-looking bassoon. And I thought, wow, what, what is that? And he said, it's a bell. A what? A bell? Wow. And then uh, I, uh, uh, this young man, uh, he, he put it together, and I, I, I just had a, a go on it. And it was a very beautiful instrument. It just went very easy. So it, in the back of my head some, somewhere, and one day I, uh, I went to, uh, to Canada and uh, I met the guy and he had tried some of his instruments at his shop. And this is, uh, oh, this is more than 10 years ago. And uh, I really wanted to, to have a go on, on, on one of his instruments. But, you know, he's a, he's a, it's, just, it's just a very small business. If you go to a big business, they, they give you an instrument. They go, okay, go ahead, try it and bring it back whenever you're ready. Uh, but in this case, I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't afford to do that. So I, you know, I, bu I bought one because I wanted to try it. And I thought, you know, if, if I don't like it, I, I'll sell it. And, um, and he made a very beautiful bassoon for me. And then, then, uh, it was the, the, the start of a, a very beautiful friendship, actually. We, we still have work together and, uh, we are actually importing uh, his bassoons to Europe now. We are trying to, to, uh, to help him to, uh, to put his bassoons in the European market. And uh, and he's doing very well. We we got now a couple of very beautiful bell bassoons in in Europe at the, at the in Amsterdam at the Amsterdam Bassoon Center. So we are. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think they're very beautiful instruments, and uh, that's how I how I met him. And we've been since then discussing every single aspect of bassoon playing and uh, bassoon making and vocals and uh, all that. Whenever we meet and talk, we are so technical that uh, it's might get very boring for other people. To <laughs> what is your favorite memory of a past performance? Wow, you got me there. 
<laughs> you got me there. And you know, I, when, when, uh, when you send me, uh, and Jackie sent me the, um, the list with the questions. And I saw that one and I thought, hey, that's a a very hard one you know you know why because we we are human beings we are musicians bassoon players maybe oboe players too I don't know but we (laughs) we are very strange because you know what happens to me Uh, 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 I don't know how many times I have played uh, uh, the right of string I, I lost count I really lost count in so many years I you know what I remember I always remember the bad ones, not the good ones. It, it, it's very strange, but it's so. Uh, it's, it's it's not about uh, my 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 best memories are not about the solo, mm-hmm. playing as performing a solo because because I I don't they I, I I lose them the ones I do well I lose them, and I just remember always the ones that were really bad. I mean because we are all human beings, so that you have also days. Where you just, you know, it just doesn't work, and you, you know, you miss it, and you don't do it, and it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, um, but you know, uh, uh, mostly is is uh, enjoying a concert. You know, the, the, it's it's one is very recent. Is we did uh, 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 this uh, the Schubert uh, Rosamunde. You know this this. Uh, pieces and it, it it's not not so long ago you you can find that in the internet there's a very beautiful recording we did with uh, Daniele Gatti our chief conductor and uh, and that was uh, really a, a a very very profound experience you might think it 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 was uh, with a big Mahler or a big Shostakovich or maybe a big solo no it wasn't this very simple Schubert music, well, it's not simple actually. Try to do it. Uh, <laughs> try to write it. Try to write that. Try to write that. But but that very very simple melodies by Schubert. That's something I will remember for a long long time. And and it was just a magnificent performance. I think it was a very beautiful performance. So if you have the chance to find it, the Rosamunde music, Schubert, if you go to the to the orchestra site, the website, you should be able to find the, the video. Yeah, and we can even link to that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, sh- you should be able to find it. Uh, awesome. You should be able to find it. A very, very beautiful uh, recording. And, and it was a very beautiful experience at the very moment. Yeah. What advice would you give to a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? <laughs> um, go for it. Go for it and never look back. Go for it. Yeah, you will enjoy it. Yeah, but work hard. Work hard. Because nothing is granted in life. Nothing. Not, nobody will give you anything for free in life. It, was, it wasn't never like that and it will never be like that. You have to work hard, because the only way to go far is by winning an audition. You win an audition, and you win another one, and you win another one, you know, and then you make, and then you make yourself, uh, comf- you, you become comfortable on, on, your, on your chair, and then you start to enjoy the music making. It's a long, long path, but it, it's, I think it's worth it. That's beautiful. I'm just sitting here nodding my head. <laughs> <as you're talking. laughs> yeah. um, our last question is from Alex Klein, who would like Alex to know. Klein. Yep. Who would is that, like to? Is that, is that Alex? The Alex Klein? The yep. Alex Klein. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, Alex Klein, um, who wants to know if it will be Argentina or Brazil that will walk away with the trophy at the next World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell Alex Klein I'm afraid he won't be Brazil. <laughs> no, no. The gloves are off. It might be Brazil. You know, Brazil might always be. It can always be. Brazil is very strong. But of course, I hope it won't be. 
<laughs> and, it, and you know, I am not from Argentina either, so I don't really don't care about Brazil or Argentina. <laughs> and I am from Uruguay, the only country, you know, that that uh, could beat Brazil in a World Cup final in Brazil because Germany did the same, but it was the semi-finals. Uh-huh. Uruguay beat them in the finals. It's a long time ago. I wasn't even born. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't even born. We, we didn't. We, we weren't even in the minds of our parents. Back then. So I'm from Uruguay. Remember days. 1950. <laughs> <laughs> but I love Alex Line. He, I, I send him a, a big hug. <laughs> Gustavo Nunez, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We couldn't be happier and can't wait to share this interview with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you, ladies. Hope you enjoyed that awesome interview with Gustavo Nunez. Don't forget to check us out on social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter. You can also listen to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and anywhere else that you get your podcasts. And you can look forward to our next interview with the wonderful Nermis Mieses, um, Assistant Professor of Oboe at Bowling Green State University.